Well, you may be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Today is a, kind of a sad day for me. It's a, just another uh, day uh, of the year where I don't get to watch my Vikings in the Super Bowl. Um, that's you know part of the deal. But you don't get to watch the Packers either, so there, huh? <laughs> all right, all right. Hey, uh, my name is Andy. If we haven't met before, uh, it's great to be with you. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and I love opening God's Word. I love being a part of this church. I love what the Lord is doing here. Uh, Tammy and, and Sherry and, and Julie, thanks for being here this morning as well. It's great to have you. And And I love what the Lord is doing uh, here, church. Would you please open up your copy of Scripture to the book of 1 Peter? We're going to be in our series again in the book of 1 Peter called Stand Firm. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning, verses 8 through 12. I I wonder, uh, can anyone finish this phrase? My job would be great except for people. I heard it. I heard it. We, We say that, right? My job would be great except for the people. Anyone ever thought that? <laughs> I think a lot of us have thought that from time to time. Uh, I think back to my experience. I was a captain on the, my high school football team, and, and I took my leadership responsibility quite seriously. I, I love football. No, 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 uh, no surprise to you, I know. I was competitive. I, I knew how to follow a program, to do what the coaches asked me to do, to work hard, to practice, and I hated losing, okay? I still hate to lose, but, but I remember times being frustrated with the guys around me because I didn't feel like some of them wanted to win as much as I did, you know? And so as a leader on the team, I felt like I had a responsibility to sort of bring everybody in line. And, and for whatever reason, I thought that if I barked loud enough, <laughs> if I intimidated well enough, that the other guys on the team would respond to that and we would all just sort of do what we were supposed to do and we'd start to win football games. I, I remember one time, I'm embarrassed about this, but I, I remember this kid was goofing off in one of the drills. And, and I, you know, he was a couple of years younger than me. He was about 100 pounds lighter than me. And I walked up to him, and I remember I put my big number 13 cleat right on the top of his foot. <laughs> and I pressed down a little bit, and maybe a little too hard. And I, I just said, you know, we're doing a drill here, and you shouldn't be goofing around. And, of course, he responded, <laughs> as anyone would, right? He did what he was supposed to do. Uh, and and I, I guarantee you, though he, he calmed down in that moment, and I, I may have captured his attention, I did anything but capture his heart. See, see, that kind of leadership works for a time, but, but eventually, and at least it has for me, it, it's paid dividends when the pressure mounted and not in the ways we desire. I remember one game, our defense wasn't playing particularly well, and it was chaos. Guys were barking at each other, and, and frankly, it was, it was embarrassing. We were going to lose the game handily, which was part of the, part of the deal for my high school football experience. And, and see, the pressure of the game revealed some really significant deficiencies in our team. All the drills, all the techniques, all the chalkboard time, all the film, all that stuff was good. It was fine. But for us, it didn't translate to winning on the field. Uh, We were missing something. And I'm convinced as I look back on that, that we were missing relationship. We were missing relationship. And see, though though I may have thought uh, then that, that this would be a great sport if it weren't for the people, what I didn't realize is that I was a part of the problem. I was a part of the problem. I was so focused on doing everything right, on making sure everybody else did everything right, that I didn't realize the value of an energized and a unified team. And and church, I I think sometimes we kind of bring this mentality, some of us, uh, with us into church, you know? Like, Like if everybody just does what they're supposed to do, if they just check the right boxes, if they learn how to say the right thing, if everybody works equally hard, if, if this group would just stop doing that or this group would start doing this, if, if the music fit my preference or the kids program and the youth program was such and such, then, then we'd really be humming. If everybody just got their act together, we'd be living the good life. 
And though we're likely quite a bit more subtle than a teenage kid thinking he's a leader, pressing a cleat into another kid's foot, whether we know it or not, we can reinforce the notion that the stuff we do is infinitely more important than the relationships that we share. And if we're not careful, we slip into this mentality of thinking, you know what, ministry would be great except for the people. That's a yucky place to be, isn't it? That's a yucky place to be. I don't, that's a theological word, yucky. Have you ever read that in Scripture? All right. Church, in our study of 1 Peter, the great apostle has been teaching this, this community of exiles in Asia Minor how to stand firm in their faith, even while under duress. And lately, we've been learning that that, that that means being subject to human governments, even when they don't act responsibly. It means being subject to, to even tyrannical masters sometimes. It means being subject to our spouses, even if they don't know and love Jesus. But now, after focusing on these sort of external pressures, Peter begins to look inward. He looks into the church, and he addresses this question. How do we treat each other in the midst of duress? when we're stressed, when we're, we're suffering, when we're struggling. And he says, look, you want to you not just survive in exile, but you want to thrive? It's not just about d- drills and doctrine. Are drills and doctrine important? You bet. In football, drills are really important. Fundamentals are really important. But it's not just about that. It's not just about what you do with the other team. It, those things are important, but if you want to thrive in exile, I'm going to say it like this, and I'm borrowing this quote from somebody else. If you want to thrive in exile, you need to move at the speed of relationship. <laughs> you need to move at the speed of relationship. And with that in mind, I want to bring you to Peter's words here. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter writes, finally, <laughs> all of you, Have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, uh, Peter's first word here indicates his intention for this section. Uh, Notice what he says there in verse 8. He says, finally, finally. And with that word, he's concluding the discussion he began in 1 Peter 2.12, where he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay? Now, I just said that Peter is focusing on moving at the speed of relationship, and that he is. But he's speaking to Christians, how to, and he's speaking to Christians on how they're to act toward one another here. But what we'll see is that how the community of God relates to each other inwardly, how we act together, has massive implications for the measure of influence we can have on those outside the faith, on, on those outward of our uh, church family. And so with that, Peter begins his focus inward. What does it look like to exist together? And I guarantee you, he's not advocating for pressing cleats into kids' feet. All right? So let's look at this. Verse 8. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. If 
five things, five attributes, if you will, that, that Peter directs towards the church. And, and look what he does here. Notice the first and the fifth attributes, all right? He has unity and, and humility of mind, a unity and a humble mind. It's the same root word with different modifiers that, that join relational and cognitive language uh, together. And so as similar words, the, uh, words with the same root word, these provide a frame of sorts for this list of five. You can see them up there on the screen, okay? Now then, notice the second and the fourth attributes, the second and the fourth attributes are sympathy and a tender heart. And, and the words for sympathy and a tender heart also go together as they engage the more emotional aspects of relationship. Okay? They, have, they have similarities. They're parallel to each other. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar. And then finally, right at the center of this discussion and this list of these five attributes is the word for brotherly love. Okay, it's right there smack in the middle. You see it. And I'm convinced that Peter is, is using a common language uh, 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 mechanism to, to make a specific point. See, this is what's called a chiasm, okay? Again, this is one of those, it's not on the test, uh, but it's, it's you know, uh, something, to, something to be aware of. It's a chiasm, and in a chiasm, uh, the parallel phrases on the outside of the phrase point to the next level of phrases on the inside, which point to the most important phrase right in the middle. They're, they're directed towards something, Okay? And in this case, they're directed towards brotherly love. See how that works? All right. And so Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, have a humble mind, <laughs> have sympathy, have a tender heart, and right in there, have brotherly love. That's the focus. Peter's emphasizing familial relationships here. He's emphasizing those relationships we share within the family of God. That, that's the main concept. And he recognizes that if the church doesn't stick together in their hostile environment, they're not going to have a chance. Those other teams are good. <laughs> they're ready. They're strong. And, and it's fascinating. Each of these attributes reflects that same suffering servant that Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2. They reflect the person, the nature of Jesus Christ. See, Peter wants who we're becoming to reflect who Jesus already is. He wants who we're becoming to reflect who Jesus already is, to reflect the suffering servant. And so let's dive into these attributes. What are, what are these that Peter's talking about here? And he starts with the outer frame. He starts with how we think, okay? Church, if we want to look like Jesus, we've got to think like Jesus, We've got to think like Jesus. And so Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind. Have, have unity of mind. In other words, be like-minded. Be, be of the swame, same persuasion. Uh, that's another theological word. Uh, be of the same persuasion. Okay? Be of the same purpose. Know who you are and where you're going together. Peter's built on that argument. If you've been with us in the series, he spent in, in an inordinate amount of time focusing on our identity. He said early on, be who you are, not where you are. Who you are matters when you're in a place of exile. Know that you are loved, that you are the children of God. Yes, you're exiles, but you're the elect exiles. God knows what he's doing. Be like-minded in who you are and the mission that God has called you to. Too. Now, he's not saying that we all need to have the same personality. Praise God. That'd be boring. <laughs> and if everybody had the same personality as me, that'd be awful. All right? All right? We're not to have the same personality. In fact, we don't all have to play the same role. We're gifted in different ways. But he is saying this. He's saying, look, 
Know your shared identity as co-heirs with Christ and know your shared mission to bring the gospel to make disciples of all nations, to represent Jesus in a world that doesn't always want to hear it. You know, I look back on my football experience. I'm not sure uh, the guys on my team were all on the same page about who we were and where we were going. At least we had different ideas about how to get to where we, we all wanted to win. But I, but I thought it was about, you know, stepping on people's toes. And there was a better way. Peter says, if you want to thrive, you got to take care of these things. you got to move at the speed of relationship. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Friends, when we function together as the body of Christ, when we act in like-minded ways, we reflect the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. We act like Jesus does in his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit when we're like-minded. Not, not just in doctrine, although that's necessary. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit agree on doctrine, amen? But not just in doctrine, but also in relationship. We share a common purpose. Jesus said, look, I do what the Father tells me to do. Edmund Clowney's helpful here, and he says, being of one mind means having a common understanding of the truth, okay? But it means more. When the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it's denied. That's a powerful statement, isn't it, friends? When the, when the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it's denied. We may have the right doctrine, but if we express it with arrogance, we're actually denying the very doctrine we're claiming to, to, to proclaim. Okay? It says when the truth of Christ is affirmed in arrogance, it's denied. The like-mindedness that Peter requires manifests the mind and love of Christ. It's precisely willingness to submit ourselves to others for Christ's sake that undercuts the misunderstandings and hostilities that can divide the Christian community. That, that willingness flows from where? From the love of Jesus Christ. It flows from Jesus. <laughs> Church, our ability to represent Jesus to the world around us flows from what he provides. <laughs> what God requires, God provides. Amen? Peter says to think like Jesus is to be like-minded with each other. But not, but not just that, not just like-minded. We're also to be of a humble mind. To be of a humble mind. In a Roman context, humility was not a virtue. Okay? To be humble was to be weak, and that was to be shameful. Honor was for those who could prove their value, who could manage their households well, who could demonstrate their authority and their might. My notion of leadership as a high school football player probably fit better in a Roman context than it did in a 20th century context, all right? Peter says that's not the way of Jesus. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Christ didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, it didn't mean he didn't understand it at a cognitive level, but, but he, he, he rejected this idea of, of elevating himself over everybody else at their expense. He demonstrated his humility all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. And church, how often do we puff our chests when we sense that our rights have been violated? How often do we compare ourselves with another person and conclude our own superiority? If they would just think like I did, then the world would be so much better. How often do we press our size 13 cleat into somebody else's foot? Peter says if you're going to thrive at the speed of relationships, don't, don't be like the world. Think like Jesus, like-minded and humble. <laughs> but not only that, see, how we think determines how we feel. 
That's that next tier in the chiasm, okay? We started it with, with, with things that we think. Now we're moving to these, this, this more emotional aspect of what it means to engage in relationship. And, and it's popular today among a lot of evangelicals to, to say that feelings ought not factor in our uh, relationship with God. That, that faith over feelings means that feelings don't matter, okay? Some people say that. But I'm convinced that Peter's arguing to the contrary here. He's not, he's not saying that feelings don't matter, but what he is saying is that faith comes first. What we think comes first. <laughs> but when we think rightly about God, our, our feelings follow. See, our, our thinking isn't predicated on our feelings. Our feelings are predicated on our faith, what we believe to be true about God and about other people. <laughs> You know, if I, if I allow my, my thoughts to dwell on the few things that Christy might frustrate me with, and I know that's hard to believe she could do that, but, but it happens, then guess what? It'll influence how I feel about her. When, when I dwell on that which, which is, is uh, less than honorable, it's going to influence how I feel, and, and then in turn, it'll influence how I'm able to love Christy, which is my calling as a husband. Christy's my wife, by the way, all right? <laughs> Church, Peter says first, get your thought life straight, and then pay attention to your, your emotional life, how you feel. And if that's hard, remember how Christ felt towards you. <laughs> did Christ have feelings? <laughs> you bet he did. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And, and, and we, we, we tease that out because he was not unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses means that he was able to sympathize. He gets it, church. He gets us. Isn't that helpful? Isn't that good? Jesus knows our experience. He knows what it's like to be tempted to do awful things. And yet, he resisted that temptation. Jesus is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That's one of the reasons he became a human. You say, God, you, you have no idea what I'm dealing with. Well, really? Look what happened to Jesus. The sense here for the word sympathize is, is to share the feelings of somebody else. I. Howard Marshall says the secret of sympathizing surely lies in, in relating so closely to others that we feel what happens to them as something that's happening to us. And that means a willingness to surrender our independence. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was, I was struggling. I was just having one of those weeks where I was a bit overwhelmed. You know, stuff kind of compounded upon itself. And, and I don't know if you ever have those weeks, but I was having a week, all right? And, and it happened to be an elder uh, board uh, meeting uh, time. And I walked into our elder meeting, and I just shared with the guys where I was at. I think I said something like, guys, I'm, I'm just struggling today. I'm wrestling with some stuff. You know what they did? They sent me home and said, come back when you're ready. <laughs> that's, not what they, that's not what they did. You know, we took 10 minutes, and they just asked me some questions. Well, what's going on, Andy? Why are you, why are you wrestling with that? They, they spent some time getting to know what was going on in my head and my heart, and they didn't do it in a judgmental way. They just, they just wanted to know because they cared. And, and at the end of that conversation, I felt like, yeah, they get me, and I'm still okay, and so are they. And then they prayed for me, and, and then we went on with the rest of our meeting. Church, it wasn't some gushy, gushy kind of experience, you know. We didn't immediately solve what I was struggling with. But, but I walked out of that meeting with a better perspective. <laughs> God met me there through our guys, through our elders, and in large measure through their sympathy. They were kind to me. They entered into my experience. Church, Peter says this ought to be the norm. This ought to be what we do. 
We're to sympathize with each other. Paul taught it in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. He said, if one member suffers, guess what? (laughs) All suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That messes with our 21st century Western mindset, doesn't it? (laughs) It's a bit uncomfortable. Weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. That's the New Testament calling for community, church. And though it may mess with us, we need to wrestle with it. We're to have sympathy for each other, but not just that. Peter says, we're also to have tender hearts. We're to have tender hearts. <laughs> I just thought of this. When I was a, that is just, that's probably too personal. I'll say it anyway, because now I have to. Uh, when, when I was a kid, I had a Care Bear. And for whatever reason, when I was five or six years old, I liked the Care Bears. And I had Tender Heart. You remember Tender Heart, the Care Bear, right? Uh, that, that was my guy. I like Tender Heart. I don't know why. That flies in the face of stepping on somebody's foot with a cleat, doesn't it? <laughs> The word for tender-hearted often gets translated compassionate. And, and what Jesus is saying is we're to be compassionate towards one another. See, w- when I think rightly about my brothers and sisters in Christ, and when I think rightly about myself, I appreciate our, our mutual need for grace. Do you need grace ever? Yes, yes, amen, amen. You can say yeah, by the way, if you want, that, that works. You need grace. Do I need grace? You bet, Amen. We have a mutual need for grace. When I understand that, when I think rightly about that, when others are struggling then, I can have compassion for them because I know I need grace too. Jesus, though he never gave in to the struggle, he knew what the struggle was because he was a human. And Matthew 9.36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus models what it is to have compassion for people. The Greek word that Peter uses here for compassion has to do with the inner bowels. It has to do with the gut. (laughs) And Peter's saying, look, when you're thinking rightly about yourself and about other people, and then when you see them suffering, it should mess with you at the deepest level." You should feel it in your gut. Friends, in an age where where we may think differently on this or that issue, we must not neglect compassion when we see each other struggling, when we see each other hurting, when we see each other making choices even that we know are not the right choices. (laughs) Having compassion isn't the same with agreeing with everything, but we can have compassion in our gut. For those who are struggling. Daniel Doriani says, few of us gladly listen to sorrowful friends. (laughs) How many of us call up our buddy or our our girlfriend and say, hey, can you just dump on me everything that you're going through? (laughs) Just give it to me. I I want it. (laughs) That's not how we think, right? Eventually we want to say, don't be a baby. Toughen up. Your problems are nothing. You brought this on yourself. Fight through it and you'll be stronger. In short, whether by nature or nurture, many of us lack sympathy and compassion. In that case, we should question our inclinations. For God is compassionate, Exodus 34, 6. Jesus is kind and tender, and he expects us to grow in conformity to him, Ephesians 4, 32, Romans 8, 29. Churches, as we address our inward responsibilities, as we think rightly about each other, our feelings follow. (laughs) Spouses, are you struggling to have feelings for your husband or wife? Years into your marriage? Maybe not years, maybe sooner than that. 
Are you constantly blaming them? Are you constantly pointing the finger? What are you thinking about them? You know, you may not be able to control completely what you feel in that given moment, but I'm convinced because Scripture tells us we can take captive every thought. What are you thinking about your spouse, about your husband, about your wife, about your kids, about your coworker, about your brothers and sisters in the, in the community in which you reside? What are you thinking about? What's that internal conversation you're having about your spouse, your friend, whomever it is? Church, when we think rightly and we feel genuinely, then we're prepared to demonstrate what Peter describes as brotherly love. Then we're prepared to demonstrate love. In other words, when we think like Jesus, we start to feel like Jesus, and finally we're ready to love like Jesus. Jesus. John 13, 34, Jesus says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How do we do that? (laughs) Is love limited to thoughts and feelings? Uh, I, I say no. Karen Jobes makes a powerful observation. She says, the emphasis on brotherly love often falls on love rather than on brother." Which, which sometimes leads to a misunderstanding that affection is more important than the resolve to do right by others with whom we are substantially related by faith in Christ. Church, brotherly love, familial love is really the, the implication here, is as much about how we act as it is about how we think and feel. The emphasis is on how we treat each other. And Peter's saying that thinking and feeling ought to come first, but then that should lead to doing. Church, Cornerstone can be known for all kinds of things. We can be known for our programs, for our doctrine, for great worship. We can be known for kids and student ministries, for men's and women's ministries. Whatever uh, people could know for us, know, know about us, we could be known by those things. We could even be known for how we engage well with community needs. But if we don't if we don't emphasize, if we aren't known by how we love each other, if we don't treat each other like Jesus treats us, we're falling short. We're missing the mark. You know, I look back on my, my high school football experience, and there's so many things I would have done differently. I love football. I still do. But I realized I wasn't moving at the speed of relationship. I didn't understand I cared more about the tasks and the score than I did about the people I was with. And frankly, when the pressure mounted, it showed. We lost a lot of games. Fits that I like the Vikings. I know that's what you're thinking, right? (laughs) Church, in one verse, Peter says, look, if you want to thrive in exile, yes, be concerned about your relationships with the world, with government, with bosses, with unbelieving spouses. But in that, don't neglect your relationship with each other. Church, we have a precious community here. You look around this room, I look around this room, and I see men and women and students and children who love Jesus. And I see some of you just joining us, and I see others who've been here for a long time. This is a precious community. And we together are called to think like Jesus, like-minded, with humility. We're called to to feel like Jesus, with tender hearts, with sympathy, and in that to express the kind of familial love that Jesus expresses towards us. (laughs) And it starts, friends, with how we treat each other. 
But now, I, I want you to notice, Peter moves on to include also how we treat those outside the faith. It starts here, but it goes outward. Especially in, in the context of the exiles to those who mean to do us harm. And there are those people, right? There are those people. I want you to listen to Peter apply his teaching about the suffering servant from early in chapter 2, now in verse 9 of chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. He says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Peter says, this is how you're to act outwardly. This is how you're to act to those who do evil against you. And whether inward or outward, always act like Jesus. How did Jesus act? <laughs> well, church, Jesus was restrained. Remember Isaiah 53, 7, he opened not his mouth. He was restrained in his actions, his attitude, his speech. He modeled restraint even as he taught it. And he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Peter says, yeah, he really meant it. <laughs> Do likewise. Do likewise. And as he prepares to quote David from Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12, uh, we're mindful of David's restraint in his relationship with King Saul. Remember, Saul chased David into the wilderness. He flung his spear at him. He tried to murder him several times. David had opportunity to retaliate against Saul, didn't he? He could have killed Saul uh, several times, but every time, what, he, what did he say? He said, I will not harm the Lord's anointed. I'm not doing that. That's not my job. It's not my job to retaliate. I'm going to let God deal with my enemies. Church, David typifies Christ. <laughs> and we're to typify them both <laughs> in how we act and how we think. We're to reflect Jesus. Now, look at, look at verse 11 here. In verse 11, it says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Church, God pursued peace for us. <laughs> God did the work. And so Peter advocates, look, don't just avoid retribution. Be like God in seeking peace for others. Pursue peace. Romans 5.20 uh, shows us, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled, we were made at peace to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, that we have been brought to peace with God, shall we be saved by His life. Church, God pursued peace for us well before we pursued peace in Him. God did the work. Are we willing to reflect that? Are we willing to do the same in our relationship with others? We're not just called to accept peace. We're called to pursue it, to seek it. Finally, in verse 9, Peter says again, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, there's some debate over this uh, the emphasis of the phrase, to this you were called, okay? And, and whether it points uh, to the earlier referent or to the later one. And, and I'm convinced, in short, that the, the context here means that, that to this you were called points to this idea of blessing enemies, okay? It points to the earlier one. When he says, for to this you were called, he means uh, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. To this you were called, Okay? We're called to bless our enemies, and that's consistent with the message Peter's been offering. And Karen Jobes gives a great illustration again. She says this. She says when she asked her students one day to come up with some specific practical examples of how someone might bless their adversary, uh, one of the students shared a story of a Christian soldier who was living in a barracks uh, in a unit, okay? 
And each evening, he'd read his Bible and he'd pray. And he'd sort of have a regimen. And the other guys picked up on it. And the guy across the aisle kept looking over at him and hurling insults at him. And one night, a pair of dirty, you know, muddy combat boots came flying across the aisle and hit the, hit the soldier. And the guy just, you know, took it and went to bed. And the next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and, and ready for inspection. And, and several uh, other soldiers in the company eventually became Christians as a result of this, this inner strength of this guy who could return blessing for insult. Church, we're called to bless our enemies. Not just to put up with them, but to bless them. It's hard. Is it hard? Of course it's hard. But what God requires, God provides. He gives us what we need in the Holy Spirit. It's hard, but it's Jesus' way. And the question for us is, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to bless my enemy? Not by human standards, right? But with Jesus, when, we, when we're aware of the great depth of sin that caused our Savior to go to the cross to die for me, that kid who stuck his cleat into another kid's foot, I realize, wow, I've been forgiven much. I've been forgiven much. Finally, church, after Peter says that thriving at the speed of relationships means to take care inwardly such that our outward actions reflect the nature and the actions of Jesus, he provides the motivation. Okay, Why would we do this? <laughs> do you need some motivation in this? I, I do. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. He says, don't repay evil for evil or, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Church, when inward love shapes outward expression, it impacts our vertical relationship with God. Let me say that again. When inward love shapes our outward expression, it impacts our vertical relationship with God. <laughs> Many people uh, work hard to care for their bodies, right? Uh, a lot of people watch what they eat, uh, they, they exercise, they go to the doctor in hopes of, of flourishing physically for as long as possible. Church, there's an even greater flourishing available to us. And it's sourced in God's blessing and nowhere else. And see, when, when we choose to bless our enemies... We participate in that which is already ours. We, we participate in that which Christ has already won for us. We participate in the good life, both the good life now. I believe the blessing is a now kind of a thing, but it's also a not yet thing. It's a blessing in what's to come. Jesus is coming back. He's prepared a place for us. There's going to be a banquet. It'll be good. And church, when we think and feel and love like Jesus, when, when we choose non-retaliation and, and peacemaking in order to bless our enemies, we not only experience God's blessing, but we also experience this. We experience his favor in real time. We, we experience his favor. Look at verse 12. I love this. See, often we think about delayed gratification. We think about what's to come in the Christian life. And certainly there's so much to come. Our hope is in what's to come, not in the temporal. And yet God meets us here. Look at verse 12. It says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Church, this is, this is in the present. 
Just as earthly fathers delight in seeing their children reflect their values, so also does our Heavenly Father. He he turns His face towards His children. He avails Himself relationally when we participate in His program. And we're not talking matters of salvation here. That's already been established, okay? But relationally, when we choose to reject God's design, we, we can fall out of that, that, that abiding, uh, kind of uh, uh, life-giving, strengthening, soul-strengthening relationship with God. It doesn't mean we're not saved, but it means we're not, we're not tapping into the resource that's available to us. God avails Himself relationally when we participate in His program. And then on top of that, He, he turns His face against those who do evil. Is evil a problem? You bet it is. Evil's a problem. But church, God says, I'm going to take care of that. I I got that. You don't need to worry about that. I I got that. We can trust our Father to vindicate us from evil. The question is, does His favor matter more or less to us than our rights? Okay? Friend, I, I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of guy that chooses His favor over my rights every time. Every time. Church, are you moving at the speed of relationships or or do you value your personal autonomy over unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Does your pride skew your view of others? Do you sometimes lack sympathy and compassion? Do you struggle to love those around you? It took me a long time in life and leadership to to realize the importance of God-honoring relationships. That that the burden was not on other people's performance. (laughs) I kept thinking, you know, if I can just lay this out in the right way and everybody does the right thing, then we're all going to be good. And I got frustrated when it didn't happen. But what I've come to realize, it was was on me to choose like-mindedness and humility and sympathy and compassion. And out of that, to love with a brotherly love that's essential to the flourishing of the church. That's been a lifelong lesson. I'm still learning it in many ways, church. And friends, I know it's difficult to stand firm in these difficult days. We're we're not all going to think the same about every issue. We're not all going to express our gifts in the same way. But as we remain relentlessly committed to like-mindedness and humility that leads to sympathy and compassion that's ultimately expressed in brotherly love, church, we will honor Christ. And He will change the world around us, through us. Because in that, the world is going to see and experience Jesus. And in that, church, we're going to enjoy the good life, regardless of present circumstance. See, that's the amazing thing about the Christian life. The good life is not linked to our present circumstance. It's linked to God's provision. If God is with me, if God is for me, then who can be against me? Church, for us, the good life is tied overwhelmingly to the blessing and favor of our God who delights in us. Let that be our sole desire these days. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for meeting us here today. I'm so grateful for my brothers and sisters in Christ here with whom uh, I'm just so pleased to share a community to share relationship and to share what I, what I really believe, God, in increasing measure is a like-mindedness 
and a willingness to lay down our personal rights for the mission that you've called us to. Lord, help us to do that with with tenderheartedness, with sympathy when we're struggling, when we have to work things out. And may that ultimately be expressed in in the kind of brotherly love, uh, the kind of familial love that you represented to us, Jesus, when you saw fit not to let us die and be lost in, in eternal conscious punishment apart from grace, but you saw fit to lay yourself down for us. May we lay ourselves down for each other. And in that, reflect you. And in that, Lord, may the world take notice and turn. We love you, God, and we trust you with all of these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.